As we conclude our series from 1 John this evening, we turn for one final time to 1 John 5. First John chapter 5. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only but by water and blood, And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life, And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that she may know that she have eternal life, and that she may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, 
And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And it is that closing verse that draws our attention this evening. Verse 21 of 1 John 5. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the last time in this series, we stand before the message brought by the Spirit of the exalted Christ through his inspired Apostle John. We might be surprised given all the emphasis of this epistle on living in God's covenant, abiding in God's fellowship, we might be surprised that he doesn't conclude this epistle with a benediction. Instead, he concludes with an admonition, a loving but urgent admonition. He has written in order that we might live in God's fellowship and thus enjoy the full joy of the Christian life. So great was John's own love for the Lord, so blessed his experience of God's fellowship that he had a fervent desire that all those to whom he wrote enjoy the same thing. He longed that the whole church live with what I call a covenant consciousness. That is the awareness of this blessed relationship in which we stand to God through our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, with a deep love for God and his people. But he also recognized the dangers that we face as those who are of God and yet live in a world that lies in wickedness. And he knew that as our affection wanders, we suffer. Great is the loss when we wander from the pathway of God's love. To turn aside from God's fellowship is destructive of all our joy, disruptive of all our peace. It's critical then that we remain within the blessed confines of our spiritual relationship with our Redeemer. That's what lies at the heart of this concluding exhortation, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. So we consider this last verse of John's epistle, his first epistle, under the theme, a concluding admonition. Noticing the ever-present danger. Secondly, the urgent exhortation. And finally, we notice to whom this is addressed the fact that the inspired apostle would conclude his epistle with this admonition 
and that the Holy Spirit preserve this admonition for us and the church throughout the ages indicates that this admonition touches on an ever-present danger for the people of God. You realize, of course, that the Bible is full of warnings. We naturally dislike warnings because we are sinners. We don't like to be told something. But it's because we are sinners that we need those warnings and admonitions. It's God's way of calling us to the right path and those actions that are pleasing in his sight. And so we find such admonitions throughout the Bible, and we have found many of them in John's first epistle. How often hasn't the apostle warned us against the works of darkness? He has warned us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He has urged us to be aware of false teachers, to reject those who reject Christ and his works. He has warned us to try the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He has told us it is folly to claim to love God and yet to hate your brother because we have a clear commandment from God. And the commandment, this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also, 1 John 4, verse 21. Many are the warnings, many the admonitions directed to us in God's word. God's word is truth. It's truth because it's the revelation of the one only true God. And it's the revelation of that only true God through the word, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have often been reminded of the essence of life everlasting, even from John 17 verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Furthermore, Christ has spoken. This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It's his word infallibly inspired and written and recorded and preserved in the Holy Scriptures, revealing the truth, revealing the Christ of God from Genesis to Revelation. It is truth from beginning to end. And John, being used by God to record this portion of the Bible and expressing his agreement with all the Scripture, sets forth this word with conviction. He knows it's truth. That's the significance of the concluding word of his epistle. Did you notice it? He concludes by saying, Amen, thy word is truth. Now bear in mind, John didn't write this merely 
to convey an intellectual knowledge of the truth. That was never his purpose. In fact, he knew that nothing is more dangerous than a mere theoretical interest in religion. His desire was to proclaim that gospel by which God gives life, and that more abundantly. He wanted God's people, those called out of darkness, to live in the light, to live in God's fellowship, to know that fellowship which is the fullness of joy. And that was also his purpose in this concluding admonition. There is an ever-present danger to our enjoyment of God's fellowship and love. There is an ever-present danger which would disturb and disrupt our only comfort in life and death. The essence of Christianity is to know God, to love him, to walk with him, to abide in Christ. Nothing can go wrong with us. That is, nothing can disrupt our joy and peace in Christ when we are walking by faith in fellowship with God. But there is that which can disturb that fellowship. That wicked one, our great adversary, the devil, would always try to draw us away from and to get us to fix our attention, indeed to fix our hearts on something other than our relationship to Jesus Christ. So John speaks of that ever-present danger. And he speaks of it as idolatry. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Notice that the greatest danger confronting us is not simply a matter of what we do or how we live, but of idolatry. Now that might seem strange if your view of idolatry is simply one of bowing before an idol made out of wood or stone. But the apostle is writing of something far more broad. And that's evident from the fact that such idols made out of wood and stone were not found or worshipped among the Christians to whom he wrote. Nor were they inclined to such idolatry. Nor, I trust, are we. And yet the apostle knew the necessity of warning against idolatry. So what is this idolatry? As we consider this question, it's important to remember the Apostle's approach throughout this epistle and the approach of Scripture with respect to the Christian life. 
Our actions are always the expressions of our attitudes and thoughts. When one lives in fellowship with God, when he loves God, that comes to expression in his action, as well as in his speech. When one lives in separation from God, when one rejects him and his word, that also comes to expression. As Proverbs 23, verse 7 puts it, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. These are the great principles of the Christian life. When a tree is good, it brings forth good fruit. Good fruit doesn't come from a rotten tree. When you are redeemed, when the wonder work of God's grace has conformed you to the image of his dear son, you bring forth the fruits of godliness. Not otherwise. Our relationship to God must be right, therefore, or everything will be wrong. And that's why the greatest danger to our spiritual lives is idolatry. An idol is anything in our lives that takes the place that belongs to God alone. An idol is that which replaces God in my life. Perhaps not entirely, But fundamentally, when there is something in my life that holds my devotion in such a way that it crowds out God, that it pushes him aside so that I depend upon it and find it central to my life, holding a controlling position in my life, that's an idol. doesn't matter what form it takes. Idolatry is to forsake my relationship to God for a relationship to another. Whether a person or a thing or even an idea. It's spiritual adultery. Of wayward Israel... God said in Ezekiel Ezekiel 6, verse 9, I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes, which go a-whoring after their idols. When we understand idolatry that way, defined as broadly as Scripture defines it, then we see how pointed is this admonition of the inspired apostle. After all, idolatry encompasses various dangers of which the apostle had already spoken. Certain antichrists had rejected the truth that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. But to do so, to take 
such an unbiblical conception of God and of his Christ to reject his self-revelation and to embrace your own ideas is idolatry. Furthermore, as John had pointed out, it's possible to make theology an idol. That's possible. It's possible for one to worship ideas and to reject God's revelation. That's what the person does who says, I love God and yet hates his brother. It's possible to call attention to yet another example of the apostles, see 1 John 2 verse 15, to love the world and the things of the world. That's idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5 even equates covetousness with idolatry. We could go on and and illustrate many different forms of idolatry. Idolatry of persons, idolatry of government, government programs, government handouts, the power of the state. There are those who worship their work, put their professional lives and careers above God, even above their family. It's idolatry. They live for their work. So devoted to it, they have no time for God. And how many idols are not attractive to us, to our sinful flesh? But you know what the supreme idol is? Luther put it this way. It's me, myself, and I. The supreme idol is self. That's the greatest danger to you and me. Putting ourselves and our own ideas and opinions before God and His Word. Everything revolves around self. My personal interest, my position, my way of thinking, my children, my intellect. In fact, because of selfish pride, that root sin which God that that which God has given as my greatest gifts might easily become my greatest idol. The object of my idolatry. And to put self above God is to break down the relationship 
That is our consciousness of fellowship with God our Father and Jesus Christ. Idolatry is destructive of our enjoyment of fellowship with God. And don't think it isn't. That's why the apostle must close his epistle with this warning and this admonition. And so he proclaims the urgent admonition. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The idea of keeping yourselves is that of guarding ourselves. There are actually two different words in the New Testament translated to keep. Both words are used together in John's Gospel account, John 17, verse 12, where Jesus prayed, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. That's one word, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept, and here a different word is used, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The first word conveys the idea of preserving and caring for. But the second includes the added emphasis of preserving against the threats to their safety. There's a serious threat, even an assault upon the object being guarded. And that's the emphasis of the word used in our text. Keep yourselves. You have a great battle on your hands. You stand before a mighty threat to your spiritual life. Picture, if you will, a person of great importance. And let me just take the President of the United States as an example. He's constantly guarded by a small army of Secret Service agents. Some are always by the president's side. Many of them blend into the crowds that may surround the president when he's out in public. But they are trained to be constantly watchful, fully aware of their surroundings, and especially on guard against the many dangers that might be present. And there are times when they have been made aware of the presence of danger, a potential threat upon the president's life. It isn't that those are the only times they're watchful because they are aware that there are always dangers. But in the awareness of a credible and present threat, they're trained to be especially diligent. They become almost, we might say, jumpy. So conscious of the urgency of their calling. 
and such is the exhortation that comes to us. Keep yourselves from idols. There's an urgent alarm in this exhortation. Again, this confirms that the warning is not merely against an idol of wood and stone. An idol itself is a dead object. Powerless to do anything, either for you or against you. But the battle that we face is that idol of the mind which would draw us away from God, away from God's Christ, away from that fellowship that is ours in him and the joy of that covenant life. Against that idolatry which wars against the soul, we are to keep ourselves. How so? How is this urgent exhortation to be carried out? How are we to keep ourselves from idols? Notice this, that we are told here, this is something we are called to do. It's not done for us. This comes to us concretely, very practically, very much to the point and very serious. It ought to strike us, too, that the apostle who writes this is the same apostle who recorded Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 where Christ said to his heavenly Father, Those that thou gavest me I have kept. No contradiction. Rather, here is illustrated the perfect balance of the Christian life under God's absolute sovereignty. It's another expression of that truth set forth in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the same idea was expressed by John earlier, even as we considered in 1 John 2, verse 14, where he refers to the strength of covenant youth, saying, And the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Notice, they overcame. They overcame because the word of God abode in them. God works his perfect work in us also by working through us. He doesn't drag us to heaven. He doesn't treat us like we might treat a pet on a leash. He works in us as the rational, moral, willing creatures that he has created and recreated in Christ Jesus. And so he calls us by his gospel, powerfully moving us by his word and spirit to fight the good fight of faith, 
In this case, to keep ourselves from idols. Fundamental to keeping ourselves is living by faith in the right relationship to Christ. It's fundamental. That means, first of all, remembering what Christ has done for us. If there is any place where idols disappear, it's at the foot of the cross. Look with eyes of faith at your Lord and Savior as he hung on that accursed tree in your place and mine and for your sins and mine. Behold his love, mingled with sorrow as the blood flowed and he laid down his life for our sins. Can you give yourself to another lover, an idol, when your mind is focused on Christ's love for you? To use the language of Romans 13 verse 14, when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. When you look upon Jesus, you know that his whole life was one of giving for you, his bride. What idol did he ever set up, forsaking the object of his love? Did he seek fame? Did he put a career before his bride? Did he labor for earthly honor and glory? Did he look for wealth? Never did he take his eyes off God's glory and off that bride given to him by his father. Remember then him to whom you belong. In addition to, keep our, to keeping ourselves from idols is to remember the true nature of idols. Is there any idol worthy of our worship and adoration? Is there any idol that blesses, that saves, that provides lasting benefits? Any idol? Is there anything or anyone in this world that is worthy of our worship and devotion, that is greater than Jehovah of hosts. To whom will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Is the question asked by Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verse 18, before setting forth the stark contrast 
between the vanity of idolatry and the glory and sovereignty of the living God. There is nothing in this world that lasts. Everything is temporary. All moving toward its end. There is nothing worthy of our worship besides Jehovah God. He who alone is the creator, the sovereign of the universe, has given us many gifts, even blessed relationships to serve us on the pathway to heaven. Let's use those gifts to his glory. But above all, remember the truth about God and live in communion with him. Certainly the positive implication of keeping yourselves from idols is this, love and serve the true God and him only. The Apostle Paul described the effects of the Thessalonian Christians upon those of Macedonia and Achaia who subsequently believed. We read of it in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 when he said, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had among you, and how ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Seek God's face and wait for his Son from heaven so you will keep yourselves from idols. None can be compared to him who alone is our Savior. What a privilege it is to abide in his fellowship, to live in his love, to be partakers of his covenant life, all for Jesus' sake. What a blessing it is to worship him to walk with him, to know him, to commune with him. That's faith. And what a blessing it shall be to abide in his tabernacle forever. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Finally, notice to whom this concluding admonition is addressed. Little children, John writes. He writes an address of deep affection, heartfelt love. Now we've seen before, the apostle occasionally used this expression to address the church's children. But we've also seen that he uses that expression with reference to the whole body of believers. And so it is here. 
It's an address that recognizes the makeup of God's church as a family of which God is the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the elder brother. But the apostle also conceives of the church as consisting of children begotten through the word and particularly through the word that the apostle had enjoyed the privilege of preaching for many years. In that sense, therefore, he viewed himself blessed by God to have been the spiritual father of those whom he had served as a faithful pastor. And as a father loves his children, so a pastor loves his flock his spiritual children. So John addresses the church as his little children. But that means they're God's children. They're distinguished in every way from the children of the devil those who are given over to idolatry in its many different forms. God's children bear the reflection of him whose image they bear. We are children of our Heavenly Father, born of God, as we read in verse 18. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has according to his abundant mercy, begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, we belong to his family, of his flesh and of his bones, partakers of the divine nature. And that's been the emphasis throughout this epistle. As we have seen, that's the essence of the Christian life. That's the heart of true Christianity. To abide in God's covenant, partakers of his own divine life and family. And the significance of that relationship is drawn out in this address and provides the basis for the admonition given. To be a little child in Christ Jesus is to be able to say with all the rest of the family, our Father, which art in heaven. Little children stand in awe of their Father. Little children dare not offend their Father because they stand before their Father with a deep love. Little children are teachable. They long to be taught by their father. They look to him for guidance. They depend upon his provision. They adore him. That's the relationship marked out by this text. 
Little children, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Remember, therefore, who you are. Live by faith in the knowledge of your fellowship with God. Believe the significance, yes, the wonder of the covenant of grace. So you will keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Gracious Father, we give thanks to Thee that we could spend this time in consideration of Thy Word as set forth by Thy Spirit through the inspired Apostle John. And we pray that of all the concepts and the riches of the gospel that we have considered from this first epistle of John, that thou wilt write these things upon our hearts, that we might live by faith, looking to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and keeping ourselves from idols. And so grant us thy blessing. For Jesus' sake, amen.